The next gentleman I'm going to introduce you to is a Christian leader, a creative thinker, a collaborator, and a friend. Brian Emmett met Jesus while studying at Harvard in the 1970s. He and his wife, Kathy, served at Covenant Church of Arlington, where Brian was the pastor for over 20 years. He also served as a Christian school teacher and administrator for many years, too. Brian has been one of our most important teachers here at the ACM conference for the last 20 years. He draws on a deep understanding of church history, literature, and modern trends in society to encourage us to see more clearly our Heavenly Father's great love. From a personal note, Brian has been a mentor to me in my own reading life, in my own scholarship. He has inspired me to think about the deep mystery and to seek truth in great books guided by the guidance or guided by the, the hand of our Holy Spirit. Help me welcome Brian Emmett. Thank you, John. Um, a lot of you have told me that you're praying for me, and I don't know if that makes me unsettled or feel even better. <laughs> so whatever it is, we'll, we're about to find out, but uh, good, good to be here. I want to thank uh, all the people who have worked so hard to set this, uh, this time up, all of the uh, care and attention to detail, the tech team and the hospitality team, and just everybody who work behind the scenes, uh, just deeply grateful. I, I think we all feel really cared for, attended to, and, and that's just a, a really wonderful thing. So thank you, Chris, and all of the crew who uh, have, have made that possible. Uh, and just a word of welcome to uh, those of you who maybe are arrived during the day. It's great to have you here. We're, we're glad to see you. Um, let's, let's pray together. Come, Holy Spirit. Reveal Christ to us. Form Christ in us. Express Christ through us. Come, Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, into the mystery. Uh, it's kind of mysterious to me why I'm up here at all, having listened to all that's you know, preceded me and all that will follow. Um, as I've been listening along with you to uh, what, what has come forward, I, I find myself uh, editing what I thought I was going to talk about, so it's somewhat of a mystery what I'm going to say in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, uh, uh, among the mysteries is just the mystery of, you know, us, this whatever, you know, we, we always have fun joking about what, what is ACM. And uh, I got an email from uh, Bill Leal this morning. Um, Bill and Dorothy are part of uh, the church up in Columbus, Ohio, weren't able to be here this time. And so this, this popped into my uh, email inbox this morning. Uh, and uh, he sent it to Mark and to Paul as well. So I'm sorry if, you know, I'm stumbling on this for you. But uh, Bill says, I wasn't sure who to send this to. Uh, and he entitled it, the subject line is The Mystery of the Web. Uh, and he and Dorothy are home and they were watching, you know, the, the live stream uh, of this last night. And Bill said, as we began the meeting tonight, last night, uh, I reflected on the privilege of our involvement with this group and, and what is represented. This group is held together by a web of personal relationships, each relationship a strand in the web. It seems weak and vulnerable 
There's no central structure, no staff, no building. A puff of air could blow it all away. But it has a resilience that a centralized structure does not. It survives the weakening or, dis or, or the weakening of any link where there are multiple links to a person. It holds that person and allows restoration to flow to them when necessary. Our weak structure is strong and resilient. Strength made perfect not just in weakness, but also by weakness. So that's another mystery for us to explore, is the mystery of God's strength being perfected in our weakness. So mystery. As I was preparing, I was thinking primarily of mystery in terms of, you know, what's, what's happening? What's going on? How is God at work? How should we respond? How, where do we find our place? Um, I think we all, have our, we all have a sense these days of um, moving into the unknown, moving off the grid, off the map uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, we're kind of looking at one another and saying, we're not in Kansas anymore. Mystery, if you want to go into the mystery, it involves some disruption, some disorientation, some discomfort, and all kinds of other dis words. So when we say, who wants to go into the mystery, right, because to head in there, and, you know, as Kevin and uh, Aaron so powerfully told us, you know, a lot of times you just get shoved into the pool, right? So, you know, you're kind of in the mystery whether you decided to or not. And I think when the New Testament thinks about mystery, and it is a term that appears in the New Testament uh, fairly often, it's not, mystery isn't used as a secret or a puzzle that, you know, has to be solved, or, or, or something that's only for a few spiritually adept people. Mystery just refers to the muchness, the moreness that God is always inviting us into. The muchness and the moreness of God and mystery is something that the Lord is always saying, come on in. You're invited in. You're not invited in to spectate. You're not invited in to control or manage or understand or define the mystery. But you're invited to get in on the muchness, the moreness of God that that word mystery is, is really all about. So you'll see that my title here is uh, Mysterious Resources for Our Mysterious Pilgrimage. Charles mentioned the idea of a journey. And uh, I also like the idea of a pilgrimage, a particular kind of journey uh, that we call a pilgrimage. And what, it, what a pilgrimage is, it's a journey to a holy place, right? When people go on a pilgrimage of some kind, there's some special sacred place that they want to go to. And the mysterious thing is anywhere we go, Jesus is already there, right? We talk about this a lot. And so in a sense, 
whether you go near or far, whether you go into the familiar or the unfamiliar, you're always ending up in a holy place because the Lord is already there waiting to welcome us in. So I want to listen to a scripture together. This is from uh, Isaiah 33. And uh, Isaiah says, Lord, be gracious to us. We long for you. Be our strength every morning, our salvation in time of distress. At the uproar of your army, the peoples flee. When you rise up, the nations scatter. Your plunder, O nations, is harvested by young locusts. Like a swarm of locust people pounce on it. Do you hear some disruption going on? Do you hear some disorientation, some discomfort, some confusion, some lack of certainty? Uh, look, their brave men cry aloud in the streets. The envoys of peace weep bitterly. The envoys of peace, the people who have been sent to make peace are weeping bitterly. The highways are deserted. No travelers are on the roads. The treaty is broken. Its witnesses are despised. No one is respected. Does that sound familiar in any way? This passage is 2,800 years old and 28 seconds old. <laughs> now, into the middle of this slide these words. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. So what I want to focus on tonight is the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to fear the Lord? The fear of the Lord, the fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure, Isaiah tells us. The way to find our way to kind of learn how to navigate through mysterious times and mysterious circumstances the key to the treasure, the key that unlocks the treasure that's in those times and seasons, in those people, in those situations. The fear of the Lord is the key. The fear of the Lord is how we get ourselves reoriented and recalibrated in the midst of the mysterious messes in which we're always going to find ourselves. The fear of the Lord is the way we find our way when we travel ways we have never been on before. So let's talk about the fear of the Lord a little bit. And in some ways, our English phrase, the fear of the Lord, doesn't help us. It doesn't really do justice to the Hebrew. It, it's a fine translation. But right, when you hear fear of blank, what are you supposed to do about the blank? Flee, right? Run away. Put as much, right? If you are afraid of snakes, you want to keep as much distance between yourself and a snake as you possibly can. If you suddenly come upon a snake, right? Move away. The fear of the Lord actually operates exactly in the opposite direction. 
To fear God is to move towards him. We fear the Lord as we move towards him. In all that I say this evening, I don't want you to hear anything I'm saying is trying to replace things that you already know and have learned and know how to do. I want to see if I can lay alongside what we already know, perhaps some things that might be helpful in addition. So oftentimes when we think about the fear of the Lord, we say something like reverent fear, which is good, but it doesn't move you closer. And so the fear of the Lord is moving towards him. I fear the Lord not as I distance myself, but as I move towards him. So the fear of the Lord is not merely or not solely an emotional condition. It's not, you know, the holy shakes for a while and then I just get up and go back about my business. It's a movement towards him. So what I want to give us is uh, three words that characterize the fear of the Lord in addition to what we already know. So these are not the only three words, but maybe some new words about the fear of the Lord. I want to give us three practices. And I want to give us a picture, a poem. And I wasn't really sure what the third P was going to be. So that's why I just said a picture and a poem. And I guess it's mysterious what the third one will be. But uh, maybe it'll be dinner time before then. So, you know, we, we won't need it. Um, so the three words, what I want what I want you to think about it, what it means to fear the Lord is to return, to receive, and to respond. Return, receive, and respond. And the three practices I want to talk about are scripture, prayer, and reflection. And as I mentioned, uh, a picture, a poem, and maybe another P word if we get there. So return. I don't want us to think primarily in terms of going back, but rather turning again. Return towards the Lord. Return. You might recall, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, there was a book called The Battle for the Mind, right? <laughs> Where's the battle now? It's for attention, right? So. This idea of returning is about where my attention is constantly refocusing. To fear God is to constantly be turning towards him in every situation, every circumstance. How many of you understand our attention spans are going down? They're shortening and we all know why that is. How many of you are like me? You pull your smartphone out of your pocket and cannot remember why you did. But it was something important. <laughs> so the battle for the mind actually has migrated now to the battle just for our attention. To fear the Lord is to train ourselves to practice how to return, turn again towards him. Secondly is receive. Because God is love, God is a giver. 
And we've already talked about this in so many ways this evening, but the first thing Jesus wants us to do once we have turned towards him is to receive from him. Right? Before Jesus asks you to do anything, he wants you to receive something for that. So to fear God means to receive from the Lord. And then finally, or not finally, but just the third word is to respond. To fear God means that we return, we receive, and then we need to get going or to keep moving in the Jesus way. So three words, return, receive, respond. And so I want to talk now about these three practices, scripture, prayer, and reflection, and maybe unpack a little bit the way each one of those can be a way to practice, to develop, to do our reps. I like that uh, Aaron's example of it's not merely time, it's the reps. So let's talk about the ways in which some practices can help us grow in the fear of the Lord. So scripture, first of all, um, I think uh, for many of us, we, our basic approach to scripture is what I want to call an extractive model. So scripture is like a mine, M-I-N-E. And, you know, we, we get our equipment and we put on a little miner's, you know, helmet with the, uh, the light on it. And we go and we dig into it and, and, and you know, we, we need to, to, to extract from it uh, its truths, its doctrines, uh, principles, information. And then we take the stuff that we've mined and, you know, we refine it and then use it, you know, to make stuff that... Uh, allows us to be better citizens, better parents, better husbands and wives, uh, all of that sort of thing. And in some ways, we view the scriptures as primarily inert until we do something, right? Until I mine it, it's just like, you know, gold in the ground. Well, you know, what good is it, you know? Um, now, I'm all for regular Bible study, Bible reading, doctrines matter, scripture teaches us many things. Uh, so I'm not trying to throw away that, what I'm calling an extractive metaphor, I'm trying to add something to it. And what I'm trying to add to it is, um, what if the Bible, in addition to being a mine, is also a feast? What if scripture really is a word of life? What if it really is bread for our souls? Quoting Deuter Deuteronomy, Jesus said, we don't live on bread alone, but on every word that comes to us from the mouth of God. I think too often we want scripture to inform us instead of transforming us, right? What happened to what you had for lunch today? What's going on with that? It's turning into you, right? You are what you eat, literally, physically. 
So how can we approach scripture in a way that's more digestive, not just extractive? Not just digging, digging in and digging stuff out. That's good. We need to do that. But what if it's... How many of you like this picture, right? I know it's a quarter to six and it's getting close to dinner time, but right, it's like you're hungry, your stomach's growling, right? We're, we're, made, we're made to hunger. And the fact of hunger means that there's something out there to satisfy it, that hunger. How can scripture become that in our experiences? How can it transform us so that we are feeding on scripture in a way that it turns into us? If, if you can follow what I'm trying to get at there. Here's a great quote from a saint I've never heard of. <laughs> By reading the Bible, you are adding yeast to the dough of your soul and body. Does that change the way you think it look the way you think about opening your Bible to read it or to study it? You're adding yeast to the dough of your soul and body. Right? If the dough doesn't get yeast, it ain't bread, is it? Well, it's flatbread, I suppose, but <laughs> and maybe that's the story right there. Without yeast, it's just flat bread. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a, uh, this is from the uh, Book of Common Prayer. This is one of the, uh, the collects for one of the Sundays. Blessed Lord, who has, caused all, who has caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest. So how might we go about doing that? Let me just give you four, four ways of what I'm calling a digestive approach to Scripture. Number one, take smaller bites. Think about one of the best meals you've ever had. Have you ever wolfed down a really great meal and regretted wolfing it? <laughs> right? So when it's a wonderful meal, so first thing you want to do is take a bite, smaller bites. Scripture's not fast food. And again, I understand, you know, if you're, if you're a mom or a dad at home and you've got, you know, three or four young kids or teenagers or whatever, I'm not, you know, I understand that sometimes grab and go is all you can do. And so please, no condemnation. I'm just trying to say, can, can we create some time and space where we're reading less and asking the Holy Spirit, our teacher, to teach us to read deeper? Okay, so take a bite. Read it. Chew on it. Chew on it means reflect, meditate. Uh, the Hebrew word is sort of what a cow does, chewing its cud, or what a lion does when it's got a really good bone. Gnaw on it. Take a bite. Read. 
Take your time. Uh, thirdly, savor. Savor it. How is this particular passage that you're reading calling you to pray in some way? How can you respond in prayer to what God is feeding you with as you, as you open the scripture? And then finally, take some time to digest. <laughs> Allow it to become you. All right, that's a little bit about scripture. Prayer. Now, prayer is the second discipline. I want to talk scripture, prayer, and reflection. So prayer. I know you've heard multiple sermons on prayers, teachings on prayers, books on prayers. Some of you may have written your own book about prayer. And all of us have developed our own unique prayer habits and prayer rules, and, and that's all great. Not trying to delete anything. But so instead of trying to teach you something about prayer, I want to offer you a poem. And this is uh, George Herbert's poem, Prayer. So if I asked you to um, picture prayer, picture prayer, how many pictures, how, can, how many different ways can you picture what prayer is? So rather than focusing on what you're doing when you're praying, that's important, but what is it? So if I put the question that way, how many different ways could you come up with? And how about 27? So George Herbert's prayer that I'm about to show and, and uh, we'll read it together. George Herbert was a uh, British poet, uh, I think 1600s. John Norton, do you remember 1500s, something like that? Um, say again? Yeah, about then, okay. So this is a poem called Prayer. It's a sonnet, 14 lines, rhyme scheme. Don't worry about any of that. You're gonna get some English nerd from me, so. Uh, but it's Norton's fault, he started it, so. Um, and again, I'm not giving you 500 pages of Moby Dick, I'm just giving you 14 <laughs> lines. And you don't have to get any tattoos. So, you know, I mean, if you want to, knock yourself out, you know, I'd, uh, ask one of the hospitality people, you're like, where's the nearest tattoo? See, anyway. So I just, want you to, I just want you to listen to these 27 pictures of prayer. Notice that this poem's not didactic. It's, it's, it's a list poem, okay? Prayer. Prayer, the church's banquet. Angels age, God's breath in man returning to his birth, the soul in paraphrase, heart in pilgrimage, the Christian plummet sounding heaven and earth, engine against the Almighty, sinner's tower, reversed thunder. Christ's side piercing spear, the six days world transposing in an hour, a kind of tune which all things hear and fear, softness and peace and joy and love and bliss, exalted manna, gladness of the heart, gladness of the best, heaven in ordinary, Man well-dressed, the Milky Way, the bird of paradise, church bells beyond the stars heard, the soul's blood, 
the land of spices, something understood. So when you think about yourself at prayer, does hearing this poem activate something in your Holy Spirit-soaked imagination about what's really going on as you pray? What does it mean that prayer is the church's banquet? The poem doesn't explain or define that for us. It just says prayer, the church's banquet. How can prayer be the land of spices or exalted manna? What's the deal with the bird of paradise? How could you explore that? What if you did? What if you took one of Herbert's images each day for about a month and just tried to sit with that as you pray. Let that picture, that image work on you. Allow it to transform how you see what you're doing when you find yourself praying. Or if you don't like 27, pick your favorite four and live, try and live with each one for a week. And if you don't like 16th century English poem, develop your own list of pictures rather than actions. You know, we're accustomed to prayer, you know, it's supplication, intercession, confession, all of that's good. Not trying to replace any of that, trying to lay some things alongside of it. What if instead of trying to figure out how prayer works for us, we tried to experience more deeply how prayer works on us and in us, and then through us. And if you really want to nerd out, here's the book, After Prayer. So Malcolm Geit is a Brit, a singer, songwriter, poet, and Anglican priest. <laughs> and um, so what he has done in this book is he's taken each one of these 27 descriptors that Herbert gave in his poem, and he's written a sonnet about each one. And English nerd speaking, rich, rich stuff. So <laughs> just saying, you know, and if you're just sort of rolling your eyes back, we're going to move on. Uh, <laughs> so uh, to fear God means to return, to receive, to respond, to move towards the Lord in those three ways, if you will. So we talked a little about scripture as a way to practice that. Prayer as a way to practice that. And I want to close by talking about reflection. Herbert pictured, one of, one of his pictures, one of his images was the soul in paraphrase. Prayer is your soul in paraphrase. Do you ever find yourself a mystery to yourself? I think we all think of ourselves as a single thing, right? I am an, an I, you know, I am me. And yet at the same time, how many of you find that singular self arguing with itself? 
Right? Like, what's going on there? Am I just me or am I, are there two of me? Or are there three of me? I, you know, how many voices do you have going on? How many conversations are ricocheting around inside you? Reflection is the practice of bringing all that I am before all who he is. Reflection means I am doing my best to bring all of me, the good, the bad, the ugly, things I'm proud of, things I'm ashamed of, things I don't want anybody talking about, things I wish everybody would, you know, throw a parade in my honor about. And I'm bringing it all into his presence. How do we really learn to listen to our lives? I'm not advocating for introspection, you know, kind of this self-helpy deep dive, the answers are within, you know, it's not that. Instead, can we learn to take, can, can you, can I learn to take my life as seriously as Jesus does? How many of you want God working in your life? How many of you feel like God is working in your life? How many of you wish that you understood what he was doing better? Reflection, the discipline of simply doing what I can to bring all that I am into the presence of all that he is. So I said I was gonna set before you a picture, a poem, and I think my third P is a prayer from Hebrews. This really hit me recently. I was, I was on retreat, um, I think it was a Zoom retreat, but, um, and somehow the scripture was mentioned, um, referring to Jesus. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. So what's Jesus doing right now? He's praying for Dudley. What else is Jesus doing right now? He's praying for Kevin at the same time. What else is Jesus doing, right? He's interceding. I don't know how he does that. He's outside of time. It's not a problem. How's Jesus praying for you? How is Jesus praying for you in addition to how you are praying to him. I'm not trying to suppress you praying to him, but what if we could learn to listen in on that prayer conversation among father and son and find ourselves learning to pray in alignment with that prayer. Here's a, a second suggestion. One is just, I've found myself challenged as I come into situations where I wanna pray, I'm starting to say, Lord Jesus, how are you already praying for this person, this situation? And can I learn to, to join you, come alongside you in that? And as you think about this idea of reflecting on your life, that's where Jesus is at work in you. How do you pay attention to that? I want to suggest that you pay more attention to your emotions. 
I understand. Emotions are terrible leaders. Don't be led by your emotions. Your emotions don't tell you anything about the outside world, do they? Not really. What do they tell you about? That's what you need to process in his presence. That's why God made us emotional creatures. So my anger, my fear, my joy, my gratitude, my, my wonder, pay attention. They're telling you something. They're pointing to something about how God is at work in you. Don't be led by them. Don't be driven by them. But allow them to direct you towards him. Because that's what they're there for. Here's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. He said, the man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. So as we're talking about into the mystery, this is our theme verse, right, for this week. You know, somebody who says they know it all doesn't know as they, they, they ought to know. The man who loves is known by God. Isn't that interesting? Paul doesn't say the man who loves knows God. That's also true. But if you want to talk about knowing, the one who loves is known by God. And then later on, Paul says, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And what is it that you will know? What do you see in the mirror? You, you in Christ. This is not self-obsession. This is not you exalting yourself as the center of everything. This is you coming to know the you that Jesus already knows you to be in him. God hides treasures in mysteries. We've heard that in many, many different ways already. The fear of the Lord is the key to the treasure. To fear the Lord means that we are constantly returning, receiving, and responding to Jesus. The Lord is exalted, for he dwells on high. He will fill Zion. Where's Zion? On earth. He's in heaven, but he will fill Zion with his justice and righteousness. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. 